grace and peace of Christ be with you. Welcome to Laguna Presbyterian Church this morning as we gather to worship the good and gracious living God we have in Jesus Christ. Let's take this as a moment to turn to our neighbor and welcome them here this morning. Let me direct your attention to some of the announcements here in our connections page. Of course, we are kicking off the fall this month and school has started. We're going to kick off the fall here on September 25th with our pancake breakfast. And that will, of course, take place in our Tankersley Hall from 9.30 through noon. It's going to be $5 per person, $15 per family, and if you have children five years and under, they're free. That's a bargain. Anywhere. That's great. Turn the page. You'll see that Mops begins on Thursday. It's going to run from September 22nd through December 15th, and that is, of course, Mothers of Preschoolers. Anyone interested in that? All the registration material is there. And next Sunday evening is our Home Hospitality Hour, and that will be at 402 Brooks Street. You can can, uh, register for that out in the uh, courtyard today. Lots of adult education opportunities. We have our men's and women's retreats coming up and lots of outreach opportunities as well to serve God. And speaking of servants, we're celebrating Valerie Hunt this week. She's worked tirelessly in our church library over all these years and has been a fantastic deacon for us too. So we're thankful for her. And I believe she worships usually at the second hour. Is that right? Great. So be sure to uh, express your thanks to her. Amen. I'd like to invite Jerry to come up and pray for us. Lord, uh, in your mercy, look upon us. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. You are a God of mercy, and you see us in our need, and you call us to yourself. We ask that your Holy Spirit may anoint us each this morning and bring illumination to your word that we may understand our world 
and engage it in new and deeper ways, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please join me for our call to worship. O Lord, our Sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. The moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings, that you are mindful of them, mortals, that you care for them. Yet, you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. O, o Lord, Lord, our, our sovereign, sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let us stand and worship the Lord together. Oh. 
We confess that it is still all too easy for us to sacrifice our convictions for convenience. Your standards for status, your principles for promotion, your absolutes for our ambition, our souls for shallow and unsatisfying success. we are seduced by power, prestige, pleasure, or possessions, seduced into violating our integrity or harming our fellowship with you. turn to you again, unfulfilled. Forgive us our half-hearted devotion and our double-minded spirit. In your mercy, O Lord, restore us. Amen. Let us now take a minute for personal silent confession. Hear the good news. God the Creator brings you new life, forgives and redeems you. Take hold of this forgiveness and live your life in the Spirit of Jesus. Amen. I'd now like to invite up Virginia Grogan, who's going to give us a lay witness about sacred story prayer. Virginia. Good morning. Steve just said, my name's Virginia Grogan, and I'm going to begin with a short prayer from the Bible. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable, O Lord, in thy sight. I'm here this morning to talk a little bit about my experience um, during this last year with a group I was in that was practicing sacred story prayer and also to invite you to consider whether this might be a good time for you to join one of our groups beginning this fall. For many years, I was involved in this church's disciple program and other Bible studies. 
and I loved them, and I learned a great deal. And each one of them deepened my faith and brought me to a better understanding of who God is. Bible study came relatively naturally for me, as it does for many of you, given my many years of schooling and study and the nature of the work I did in secular life. But despite those studies, I felt that sometimes my prayer life and my relationship with God were frankly a bit lacking. My prayers were too often comprised of a perfunctory thank you for the blessings in my life, or worse, a self-centered litany of how I'd like God to work things out according to my plan, as opposed to listening and drawing near to God and trying to understand what his plan was for my life and the world. Enter the sacred story prayer. The sacred story prayer offers a time-honored and rather specific framework for entering into dialogue with God, of learning to sit with him and be still in his presence, of learning how to feel his love and healing grace, and of being mindful of the roles he seeks for us in this world of his. It takes only 15 minutes each day, and the discipline is taught gradually, building each part upon another of the fivefold prayer. When practiced faithfully, which is not always, <laughs> I found that these 15 minutes of daily prayer left me throughout the day with a deeper awareness of God's presence and of his grace. I also was much more likely to feel the guidance of the Spirit in critical moments in my day. It was almost as if the prayers helped to open my heart to hear and receive what God wanted me to hear. I'm not saying that the prayer discipline has given me a magic fast track to God or that I have arrived anywhere. The faith walk is a lifetime journey as the sacred story tells us again and again. But I can say that for me, sacred story prayer helped open new dimensions so that faith was not merely a declaration of belief, but an experience of deeper relationship with God and with my fellow man. If you would like to learn more about a prayer practice with potential for drawing you into a closer relationship with God, we invite you to join one of our three sacred story prayer groups this fall. They will begin the second week of October, last an hour for each meeting, and end before the crush of the Christmas holidays. The homework is made up primarily of the 15 minutes of daily prayer with some additional relatively light reading. Several of those of us who have participated in the practice over the last year will be in Tank Hall starting at 11.15 today to describe a bit more about this eight-week study and to answer any questions you may have. You can also grab any one of the one of us who are here this morning, uh, Deborah Sakash, um, Jackie Pearson, or myself between services. If you are curious to know a bit more, I hope to see you there.
invite you to take your Bible and turn to Daniel chapter 2. It's on your page 820 in the Old Testament. Daniel's dream. In the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed such dreams that his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. So the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. And when they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had such a dream that my spirit is troubled by the desire to understand it. Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will reveal the interpretation. The king answered the Chaldeans, This is a public decree. If you do not tell me both the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you do tell me the dream and its interpretation... You shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time. Let the king first tell his servants the dream. Then we can give its interpretation. The king answered, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see I have firmly decreed if you do not tell me the dream, there is but one verdict for you. You have agreed to speak lying and misleading words to me until things take a turn. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give, its, give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king, Look, there's no one on earth who can reveal what the king demands. In fact, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king is asking is too difficult, and no one can reveal it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. Because of this, the king flew into a violent rage and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. The decree was issued, and the wise men were about to be executed, and they looked for Daniel and his companions to execute them. Then Daniel responded with prudence and discretion to Ariok, the king's chief executioner, who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. He asked Ariok, the royal official, why is the decree of the king so urgent? And Ariok then explained the matter to Daniel. So Daniel went in and requested that the king give him time and he would tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his home and informed his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions with the rest of the wise men of Babylon might not perish. 
Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was a Babylonian century. All the signs of success for political greatness were now focused on this empire. Babylon, using all of its power, had conquered the kingdoms of the world. All eyes of the civilized world looked to Babylon and its king, Nebuchadnezzar who was seated upon his throne, who had achieved the pinnacle of success and greatness. Nebuchadnezzar, one of the famous kings of ancient history, had it all together. He'd placed his name everywhere, and he was beginning to plan his legacy already. What does the king do when he plans his legacy? He considers ways of placing his name or his picture wherever he can. He begins to envision huge statues of himself standing in every marketplace and every city of the empire. And so Nebuchadnezzar was engaged in this kingly duty. I remember my first visit to Kenya, East Africa, and how impressed I was how the president of of Kenya had his picture in every public building, in every business, and in every home. I started wondering, what is really going on here? And so it is with kings, you know, when the Soviet Union was just beginning as a radical revolutionary movement under Lenin, not an accident that Lenin's statue was placed in the marketplace, in public places of all the... uh, satellite capitals and nations of the world. This is what political rulers do. They begin to symbolize the pride of their empire and of their nation, and they move to a very dangerous place in their leadership. Frankly, it's one of the reasons that I love to visit Washington, D.C., Because there the legacy and the inspiration and the patriotism of our nation is symbolized in ways that make sense with with memorials to Washington and Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln and many others who have led our armies in battles victoriously and many other influential peoples and movements are symbolized in our museums It's a wonderful place to visit, and every American ought to visit such a place. Every nation has places like this. So Nebuchadnezzar was at the very pinnacle of his power and pride. He'd been ruling for two years, the text tells us, and he began to have very disturbing dreams.
Perhaps he thought these dreams would go away, but they became repetitive. You ever had repetitive dreams that were troubling, that you couldn't understand, that kept you up in the nighttime, that caused you to walk the floor in worry, in anxiety, in fear, that perhaps even stirred some anger within you? This was Nebuchadnezzar's dilemma. And at long last, long last, his insecurity and paranoia began to get the best of him. And he called all of his wise men, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the fortune tellers, the astrologers, all the workers of the occult to come and not only tell him what his dream was, but to interpret it. Now that seems a little unreasonable, doesn't it? Nevertheless, he said, unless you can tell me the dream... I will not trust your interpretation. I know what you're doing. You're going to come to, if I tell you the dream, you're going to come together. And you're going to develop a story that will appease me and keep me happy and guard your privileged position in the palace. You tell me the dream, and they argued with him. You're being unreasonable, king. And about this point, they had gone too far. They had pushed the king too far. He was upset. He was filled with violent rage toward them and said, this is the decree. You're going to die unless you tell me the dream and its interpretation. And so the sentence was handed down. After they said to him, no king in the history of the world has ever asked of the, of, the man, of the wise men such a thing. And so the king's executioner was out rounding up the wise men to put them to death, to execute them publicly. And what was happening in the midst of all this was that the king's Anxiety and fear and anger were infecting the whole kingdom of Babylon. And that's what happens when political leadership becomes anxious and fearful and angry. Someone asked me, why are you preaching on Daniel this year at this time? I'm doing it for this very reason. That we, and not only our nation, but the nations of the earth, are in a very troubled time in which the level of anxiety and fear and anger are increasing seemingly daily to the place where the nation, the population, is infected, the church infected by anger and anxiety and fear and worried about the future. What is going to come next? It was in this context that Daniel provided the leadership that the church has always needed to provide in such times as this. What did Daniel's leadership look like? Well, first he gathered the facts. He found out what was going on. 
He couldn't do anything until he understood the dynamics of the nation at that particular time. This is the first and primary task of leadership. Whether it's in political leadership or church leadership, to discern what the facts are before any kind of interpretation is given as to what's going on. I remember in Washington, D.C. a few years ago, I visited the archives, the National Archives, and they had an exhibit of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And you could go from station to station and listen in to the conversations in the White House as President Kennedy had gathered his advisors together to consider how to respond to the threat of the Soviet Union in placing missiles and nuclear warheads in Cuba, 100 miles from our coast, threatening the nation. Some of the wise men, some of the counselors said, let's have a full-blown confrontation with the Soviets. Let's engage them. If necessary, go to war. Let's invade Cuba and bomb. The president listened to all of his counselors and decision makers, and gradually, together, they developed a plan that turned around the Soviet Union that caused Khrushchev to take his missiles out of Cuba, and we avoided a catastrophe. Daniel was calm. He was centered, he was cool, he studied what was going on. You know, this is what we Presbyterians do oftentimes. We get into all kinds of trouble with this. We seek to discern the facts. And we study issues. Every time the General Assembly meets, this is what's going on. One of the reasons I'm thankful to be a Presbyterian is that we do not duck What's going on in the world? We seek to understand it. We're not of all one mind, but at least we study and seek to organize a list of facts and possible interpretations before we develop a response and say anything. Many organizations and institutions neglect that. Daniel he gathered the facts. He went to the king. He interviewed the king. He pulled it together. He gathered his friends. He went back to those three companions. And they represent so much, those four. They represent the church, the body of Christ. They represent Daniel's support group. A support group that pulled together to fellowship, to support one another, to be a presence for one another, encouraging voices, comforting words for Daniel and the development of a plan. And so it was that in the context of this covenant community, they found strength to go on to address the issues, the crisis that was at hand. Daniel gathered his friends. I got an email 
several weeks ago from one of my fellow pastors in the presbytery asking if I'd be a part of a panel on September 29th, the date that was set, for the preaching pastors of this presbytery to come together to consider how we preach in such a time as this when everything seems to be so polarized and a lot of preachers are scared to death even to come close to anything, we just as soon spiritualize everything and privatize it and not be concerned. None of us are involved in endorsing candidates or political parties. But what does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not only in how we live, but in what we say? And what we proclaim. And so September 29th, we're going to come together here at our church. We're having a great response because there is a felt need for us to be present with one another. It's our support group. And rather than hanging alone, maybe we'll all hang together. <laughs> Daniel gathered the facts. And he gathered his friends. But thirdly, he gathered his friends to worship the God of heaven. And he asked them to pray to the God of heaven that they might receive mercy for that time of need. God's unconditional favor, God's blessing, God's wisdom, God's grace to go on. They worship together. And I can see those four getting on their knees and lifting up their prayers of intercession on behalf of the nation and the rulers and the Jewish community in Babylon. They prayed together and they asked for mercy, even as Pope Francis has asked his church to pray for mercy during this year, in a jubilee year of mercy with the awareness that we need Mercy, the whole human race needs mercy because we are all powerless and broken and conflicted and polarized and we need help. And the question is, does anyone see if there's a God in heaven, does he see our need? And can he act to save us from ourselves and our own self-destructive violent inclinations? Can he? Some have said that life begins when we get in touch with our powerlessness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, we live in such a time. One of my readings over the summer was Brian Stevenson's new book entitled Just Mercy. Brian Stevenson is an African-American Harvard Law School trained attorney who has given his life to representing prisoners in Alabama and other southern states who are on death row, who have a sentence of death over their heads. Many there unjustly, innocent, never given lawyers, but people have waited and listened and smelled the flesh of people frying in the electric chair. There were so many parts of the book I could hardly stand to read it, but it was so compelling I couldn't put it down. 
And while he was waiting, he said one night for one of his clients to be executed in the prison. He asked himself, why am I doing this? That's a good question. Why am I doing this? Because I live in a world of brokenness. And the burden of human brokenness is so great, I can hardly bear it. And I don't need to do this. I'm going to run away from this. And then he said, I realized in those moments of tears and prayers that by doing this work, I had discovered my own brokenness. And I've discovered that the discovery of brokenness is the very foundation of compassion. A compassion that moves us to mercy, to hang in there, to be in places that no one else will be. That's a very different way of approaching the world than most of the world lives by that seeks to accumulate power. Not easy to talk about brokenness. From time to time, Brian would be invited to listen in on a conversation of three, of three women, one of which was Rosa Parks, and two other women who had been close to her in the civil rights movement in the South. You remember Rosa? She was the lady who refused to go to the back of the bus and launched a major civil rights protest. Her bronze statue is on Capitol Hill. She's a hero of the civil rights movement. So after listening for some time, they asked him if he wanted to say anything. And he looked and they nodded to him that it was okay for him to speak. And he gave his long litany of woes of brokenness that he was carrying on his back. And Rosa, after he was finished, said, young man, you're going to be tired, tired, tired. One of the ladies who had invited him, to whom he was the closest, said, therefore, you must be brave, brave, brave. Because this is the work to which God has called you. And he, he wrote about his reading of 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul, who had the thorn in the flesh that brought him low, that put him in touch with his own brokenness and weakness, and how he would prayed three times that God would take it away. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My mercy is sufficient for you. Because when you're weak, then you're strong. Therefore, he said, I accept my weakness, my own brokenness, my own need and powerlessness, because when I'm weak and powerless, then I'm dependent upon God and the power of God, and it makes all the difference. And that's where the church needs to be, I believe, in this time. Gathering the facts and studying, hanging in fellowship together, 
pledging to be together, whether or not we like each other or not, or agree with each other, but to be a support group, a covenant community that has its commitment renewed over and over, a group that knows how to worship and to ask the God of heaven to grant us mercy, to help us in our time of need. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Pray with me. It is your mercy that we seek this morning, Lord. We know we can't make it alone. And some of us are scared to death for ourselves, for our churches in this polarized time, for our nation in this election time. And Lord, we know we need a spiritual revival. We need a nation that turns to you and turns to one another and learns to love one another and to listen to one another and to share with one another and to be the people of God, a light in the world, a people who pursue just mercy, the just mercy of the kingdom of God, who seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, a righteousness that connects us with others and allows us to be agents of reconciling, healing, love, symbols of mercy ourselves. When people see us here and our bell tower and our lights, and our people, may they think mercy, help, wholeness, healing, life, love. We ask in your name. Amen. From the highest of heights to the depths of the sea.
church, let's stand together and sing. Indescribable, uncontainable, you place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You are amazing God. All powerful, all powerful untamable, Almighty and merciful God, from whom comes all that is good, we praise you for all of your mercies, for your goodness that has created us, your grace that has sustained us, your wisdom that has challenged us, your love that has redeemed us through Jesus Christ our Lord. For our church, as we begin this new year, we ask in this new school year that you would cause us to use our time talents and gifts to spread through our neighborhoods, homes, schools, places of work, the good news of your reconciling love. And we pray that it will be a witness that all of our time and riches are not being stored in what can fall away, but in what can last for the sake of our Savior. With thanksgiving for all of your gifts, we offer ourselves and all that we have in union with Christ's offering for us. And we pray for your blessing upon this offering to the glory of Jesus Christ, the one who has taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our closing hymn is Great is Thy Faithfulness. It's hymn number 43 in the hymnal, and we'll sing together verses 1 and 3.
the power of God's mercy rest upon us each as we go forth into God's world to live our lives in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our state and nation. May we live to the glory of God and be a light of hope and mercy to all. Amen.